Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Most Hong Kong residents nowadays only have to worry about a wandering boar or an aggressive monkey in their day-to-day lives. But for much of its history, those living in the British colony were worried about a very different form of wildlife, the South China tiger. Not that their British overlords always believed them. As John Saeki notes in his book, The Last Tigers of Hong Kong, True Stories of Big Cats That Stalked Britain's Chinese Colony, published by Blacksmith Books. Police officers, civil servants, and journalists often dismissed sightings as a case of mistaken identity by confused locals, until authorities saw tigers with their own eyes, in which case it became a much more serious problem. John Saeki runs the graphics desk in the Hong Kong office of the international newswire Agence France Presse. He spends his working days writing, designing, and editing maps, charts, information, graphics on world news. He is also the author of the novel The Tiger Hunters of Tayo. Today, John and I talk about the tiger and its many sightings, rumored and confirmed, in the now lost rural communities of Hong Kong. So, John, thanks so much for joining me today on the Asian View Books podcast. You know, let's start with the South China tiger. What do we know about it? And did it differ from other tigers? Well, thanks very much for inviting me, Nicholas. Uh, It's always good to talk about tigers. Um, The South China tiger, which features in my book, was recognized as one of the nine main subspecies of tigers, which had been recognized uh, throughout most of the uh, 20th century. What's interesting now is that um, the IUCN in uh, 2017 uh, have revised their uh, subspecies categories uh, to uh, separate them into continental and Sunda Island tigers. Continental basically means all the tigers except for the Sumatran tiger. So the South China tiger was uh, was is is one of those. Um, like the men, these the, the the differences between the subspecies were very subtle, and I, there seems to be a lot of evidence that. Um, the uh, recognised subspecies did interbreed when their territories 
overlapped. Um, and as, as the 2017 ruling would imply, I think they're better seen as kind of different breeds, like, for example, like dog breeds, um, rather than distinct species. Um, but China is the place where the oldest remains of tigers have been discovered at more than 2 million years old, further north than the heartland of the South China tigers, so closer towards Xi'an. Um, and so um, many people consider that uh, China is a sort of suitable place to look at as, as the origin of the tiger species. Um, and... Um, the South China tiger is now classed as functionally uh, extinct, according to sort of uh, international groups like the WHO and IUCN. Um, although the government of China does still have an official program that's hoping to uh, revive the the species from the, the the few sort of captives that have been identified as South China. So. That's the South China Tiger. So how did tigers actually get into Hong Kong? You know, the border between China and British Hong Kong was largely meaningless, at least from the tiger's point of view. Um, so, so how do they actually kind of cross the border and get into the territory? So I think that basically they walked um, or they swam. Um, I think the land, land border was, was certainly porous for both animals and humans. Uh, and uh, the degree to which they were, it was porous, I think, depended on what was going on in the territories. There'd be certain periods when um, the, sort of the British would have guarded it a lot more carefully and other periods when uh, things were more relaxed. Um, and um, tigers being almost invisible much of the time, they, they wouldn't have found it very difficult to slip past human efforts on the land. The swimming abilities, I think, are less well appreciated, um, just as uh, the swimming abilities of Hong Kong wild boars are. Um, there was there was a period in the early 2000s in Hong Kong when the public golf course at Khao Sai Cha was having big problems because of boars digging up the fairways at night. Well, that's an island. Um, and um, at first, people found it difficult to understand how that was happening until they realized that the boars were actually swimming over from Sai Kung. So we have the swimming boars, and certainly we've got the tigers. And um, there's the, you can find several instances of tigers swimming in my book. Um, and also, actually, these days, all you need to do is sort of check on YouTube, and you can find examples of tigers swimming and swimming very well. So, you know, what did local Chinese communities think of the tiger, both in Hong Kong and across the border in southern China? You know, did they think of it as a threat, as a pest, or as, you know, something bigger, something something more symbolic? I think both. Um, there's, there's certainly plenty uh, from sort of Chinese tiger mythology. Uh, there was a lot of work that was uh, done by... Um, uh, the American researcher Chris Coggins, who also features in my book quite a bit, um, who sort of who made a record of how how the tiger was very much revered and very much part of folklore and myth, and was seen as as a deity um, in in many parts of southern China, um, but at the same time there was a real um, awareness of the danger of living close to a tiger, especially if a tiger gained the habit of of, uh, of hunting people, which from time to time, the records show that it was something that happened. Um, so I think they were held in awe and at the same time uh, in a fair, with a, a fair bit of fear. Um, and there was a lot of practical folklore as well, I think, that um, I've heard 
passed on by Hong Kong friends. Um, and what one of the classics is to run downhill if you see a tiger. Now, I read a, about this. It kept coming up in in uh, the writings of Harry Caldwell, another person featured in my book. Um, and, um, and he was talking about villages he'd meet in South China in the 1910s, uh, early 20s. And they all said, if you see a tiger, run downhill. Um, then a Hong Kong friend of mine asked her mother about her experiences of growing up in the New Territories in the 1950s. And one of the things that her mother came back to with was, um, if you see a tiger, you have to run downhill. So there was, there, was a, there was certainly an awareness amongst the locals that the tigers were around, I think, um, depending on how they lived, of course, whether it was very rural or in, in the middle of the city. But in the rural areas, I think there was an awareness. One of my favourite stories about that came from a court case um, in Hong Kong when a European lawyer quizzed a witness from Lantau on her whereabouts at a certain time. And she explained that she was up on the hills with the with her cattle as there had been a report of a tiger. This completely baffled the lawyer, and he asked her why, why on earth she would stick around if there was a tiger. And she was just as baffled by his ignorance and said, well, obviously, um, I was up there to protect my animals. So I think there was definitely definitely a different uh, awareness amongst, amongst the sort of rural local people uh, compared to the sort of British overlords. So it's it's interesting you mentioned um, Harry Caldwell, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit in my in my notes here. But if your book if your book kind of has a central character, it's probably him. You know, he's a missionary, he's a tiger hunter, um, using using I guess the the power of tiger hunting to spread the word of God. Uh, but I guess who who was he, and and what was he doing hunting tigers in in South China? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I dedicated a chapter on Harry Caldwell because I think it was really interesting. And although his exploits all took place across the border, I think it's very relevant to understanding the Hong Kong tiger because the Hong Kong tiger wasn't indigenous to Hong Kong. It was there were the South China tigers that were just wandering in and out of Hong Kong, and no one knew them better, um, certainly in the sort of English speaking world, than Harry Caldwell. The reason for that is that he was already a hunter in the United States before he was posted to to China for his missionary work. Um, And at first, he didn't expect to be hunting tigers. In fact, he didn't even know that there were tigers in South China. He brought his rifle just as, as because it was his hobby. It's what he did. But he didn't think it was related to his missionary work until... Uh, the the people that he was trying to convert to Christianity noticed that he was quite a keen hunter and started coming up to him saying, look, you know, if you're going to do that, we've got something useful for you. Uh, We've got these deadly tigers in our neighborhood and it would really help us if you could go after them. And so he set about um, finding out about uh, more about this um, and, uh, um, and met his first tigers um, very near to the area where he was doing his fish missionary work, it was urgent for him to to do something about this because he he was building he built a church after he'd converted a handful of people, but they were afraid to leave their houses to come to the church because there happened to be a tiger in the area. So he he went out hunted his first tiger, and there is a long story about that. That's in my book, which I I won't go into now. Uh, but it involves uh, the British consul in, in in Amoy, who himself didn't believe there were tigers very, very nearby. 
But when and but then that was the beginning, and then he carried on hunting, and he what he discovered was that um, a it was doing a lot of uh, a service to the community where people were genuinely afraid of of dangerous tigers, and b it had an amazing success uh, impact on his uh, conversion to Christianity because people started to believe that his God must be really really powerful if it can get the tiger gods. So. In doing this, then Harry came to know the tiger very, very well. And according to his son, John, Harry's work became very important in identifying the South China tiger as a a distinct subspecies at the time. Um, And he spent many hours observing tigers. He would go and sit in a tiger's lair waiting for a tiger to return from a hunt and watch it um, eat eat its meal um, and and study how it behaved, mother and cubs, and um, had the whole setup of the tiger lair uh, until then, of course, he'd eventually shoot one. Um, so it was his intimate knowledge of the tigers um, that uh, made him really interesting, I think, to, to help us understand what type of an animal was coming into Hong Kong. So you mentioned the the British consul, um, and that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, you noted several points, both, I guess, in Hong Kong and Southern China, that the British were often, um, to try the best way to, 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 to say this, it, it always, somebody's, you know that they always felt like there was no way a, such a majestic animal like the tiger would ever deign to live in such a place as Hong Kong. Um, until they saw it with with their own eyes, you know. Um, I, I guess I wonder if I might kind of talk a bit more about about the British attitudes towards the tiger and how they dealt with, I, I guess, how they viewed rumored and then confirmed kind of tiger sightings in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's uh, for me. It's I personally find it quite interesting that whole sort of dynamic um, between the sort of local reports and the skepticism. Um, to a certain extent, I, it's only you know I, I can't really I can't really explain why a certain group of people thought uh, one thing and another didn't, but I have my own sort of conjecture. I think for starters, you, you mentioned about the sort of the 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 mystique of the tiger, and I, I, I you know I think it comes down to quite 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 sort of tangible um characteristics like it was just based the tiger just is such a sheer sort of powerful and beautiful animal is a real supreme predator that you know without weapons humans have little chance against the tiger on a one-to-one confrontation and and you you know we, we we're not in a position to really argue with that sort of power um and then you add to that is speed and agility and you've got a superpower and then sprinkle in a, a bit of, uh, uh, you know, magic, like its uh, ability to make itself invisible almost at will. And you've got something that's almost supernatural. And and I think that seems to be taken across different cultures and uh, the British had their way of taking it. And I, and I my impression is that Hong Kong just wasn't considered to be the type of place that that held 
awesome wildlife. Um, partly the landscape. Uh, I think it was Palmerston that noted that it was it was completely deforested and you know a bit of a wasteland. Um, the tigers of India seem to appear from lush jungles um, with all the mythology that was in the jungles. Any hunt that took place would be a, a huge affair and a demonstration of power with um, you know hundreds of, of locals that turned into jungle beaters that bring the tigers out into the open with with uh, powerful sort of overlords sitting on the backs of elephants and shooting at the tigers. And um, Hong Kong was just didn't seem like the uh, arena for that sort of event to take place. Um, um, and and that's the sort of yeah that that's the conjecture that 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 comes to me from from reading the voice of skepticism that's so apparent in 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 the uh, news articles of the early twentieth century. Um, so. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry, I think I've just run dry. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but I think you know. Let's let's talk about the. I mean, there. So there are two confirmed tiger killings. I mean, sorry, two confirmed tiger killed tigers. I mean, um, during Hong's history, and I think there there's one in the forties. But I would like to talk about the first one, which is the one in 1915, where I think the tiger that was responsible for for killing two policemen. Um, and I wonder if you might talk a bit about that particular event, about the 1915 tiger and and how Hong Kong reacted to to its presence and to it, you know, killing two policemen. Yep. Yep. And that that is the most famous tiger incident. And there's a photograph that was preserved from after the tiger was killed, uh, which people might have seen. So the 1915 tiger um came about um, in March of that year. Two months earlier, in January, um, the uh, PC Ernest Goucher, Ernest Goucher uh, of Shangshui Police Station had already been informed that there was a tiger in the area when a, a local farmer reported that his, his pony had been eaten. Um, and Goucher went out looking at that time but didn't find anything. And then two months later, the beginning of March, so people came in with a report about a death. Now, unfortunately, I found little information about who uh, or possibly um, more than one person um, had been killed, um, but what what we hear about is Goucher and his his friend, who was a, a colleague from a different poli- police station, who was on a visit. Um, they went out with light, small uh, revolvers, um, and a party of Chinese officers who were only armed with poles, and um, they got to a village called uh, Liung Yuk Tao, and. Um, so a group of children told them very excitedly that a t- that tiger was in the bushes nearby. The so Goucher uh, decided to wait for backup. Um, apparently, there was a party of Indian police officers uh, on their way with carbine rifles, and so they waited in the village. But according to the daily press, uh, one of the Chinese officers got impatient, and he lobbed uh, a bit of soil into the bushes, which provoked a tiger that was said to be the size of a China pony, to jump out at the party. I find this quite interesting because uh, although there's been numerous tiger reports in Hong Kong, there's not really so many tiger attacks. But this one, which was obviously being hunted by a group of armed people, 
um, you know, jumped out. And I think there must have been an element of self-defense in the tiger who, who was aware of what was going on. And it jumped straight onto Goucher and just uh, tossed him about like a shuttlecock, somebody described. Um, even though he was a big lad, that was more than six foot tall. Um, and he was injured pretty badly, uh, sort of flesh torn on on his back and in his loins, and um, but he was alive and he was he was transported uh, down to down to um, to Kowloon and to Hong Kong Island, and he was uh, put into hospital and he survived for four days. Apparently, at first he was doing all right. Meanwhile. Um, the Indian officers arrived uh, at at the seed of the tiger and they went looking. They spent a good few hours looking for this tiger and they couldn't find any trace of it. It completely melted away into the bush and the party were about to turn back when the tiger then attacked them. Again, I think that's interesting because we don't really have that very often in Hong Kong at all or virtually no other reports. And this time it was the uh, an Indian officer, Rutan Singh, who was um, who was the target of the tiger's attack, and he was killed outright immediately. Um, and um, um, Goucher died four days later. And what I, I find interesting is that you know perhaps he would have survived if um, antibiotics had been available to him. But he was he was uh, at least sort of twenty years too early for that. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So, you know, one thing that 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 struck me on reading your book, and it's one of these things that I that I always knew in theory, but it was kind of hard to, you know, you don't, like until you actually kind of see it described, it's kind of hard to really visualize. Like how much of Hong Kong was countryside and how much of it kind of remained countryside until you know, pretty late in its history. I think a lot of the new territories doesn't really get developed until um, certainly, I think, like the 60s and 70s. So, I mean, so we talk about kind of these villages and these farms and these rural communities that are, um, that are, uh, that at least the British at times, the, at, least, at least at the beginning, seem to perceive as somewhat lawless. Um, this is just kind of strange, kind of as someone who lives in Hong Kong and thinking of, the new territories, anything other, just kind of like, oh, it's country parks and big towns. So, I mean, could you actually talk about kind of what rural Hong Kong was like at this time? What was the, what were the new territories like, um, kind of throughout much of the period that you're writing about? Well, I think I think it's it's worth it's worth looking at the the population growth. Uh, so it was only sort of during the wartime that the Hong Kong population kind of hit hit the sort of million mark. Um, and now we've got um, well over seven million people in Hong Kong, and um, the main sort of urban urban concentration of Hong Kong was Hong Kong Island itself, um, and and Kowloon. Um, probably uh, Kowloon would have been more densely populated as it is now. But even you know today, when we look at Hong Kong itself, it doesn't take long to walk out from from central or wan chai 
and to just to start climbing up into the into the country parks it's um it's a huge amount of greenery that surrounded um quite small concentrated areas of of urban development and the new territories were as far as um i can understand just a um, collection of of clan clan based villages that were linked by that trails over the hills when you look at places like uh, you know Shatin today these these were completely new towns that were built up in the um 60s and the 70s so it 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 was largely rural i would say i think it's fair to say um but it was also deforested um it was deforested when the british kind of took the lease of of the new territories after um 1898 um and it was um a certain amount of forestry had i think recovered by the time of the japanese occupation but again during during that period and a, a period of scarcity of fuel i think there was another new deforestation that took place and so much of the lush greenery that we see today i believe was is a recovery it's like post-war recovery um and um I, I, you know as as you, as you do ask about the past but for me when i first came to hong kong i was actually struck by how much greenery there was there was the, even now i think there's so much more greenery than i had ever expected um uh, to find when i first came to hong kong and i think a lot of people do find that especially you know when activities such as hiking you know is is such a common activity in hong kong and you realize that there's there's so much to explore and um it's easy to see how how animals can hide um in that that amount of space um and and i think it's it's um really important that people understand this about hong kong today still because there's there are there are species li- living quietly in hong kong like um you know uh, like the civet cats um and even really rare species like uh the the pangolin that uh, until very recently at least i think uh, kaldori farm was still getting information about pangolins in hong kong and that's considered to be one of the most trafficked animals in the world and perhaps one of the things that protects the pangolins in hong kong is that they are the ones that remain are very very scarce so it's not actually worth organizing any sort of poaching expedition because you know your return isn't going to be really worthwhile but perhaps because of factors like that kind of those kind of historical anomalies that have allowed animals like the pangolins the barking deer um to 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 quietly exist in hong kong yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's, I mentioned this in my, in my introduction, but, you know, there's always stories. One of the, one of the, one of the, always a favorite story in Hong Kong is, um, is when a wild boar intrudes on, um, on a neighborhood in Kenny town or cops on the MTR. Uh, everyone talks about, um, the monk, like ma, the, the macaques and how they have learned to recognize park and shop and welcome bags. Um, and I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll maybe like kind of end, end with your, thoughts on this um you know again like hong kong is simultaneously like a one of the world's most urbanized places most dense places but also it's a place where as you know a lot of the land is protected country park um there's actually a lot of greenery still uh, i say still like much more i think than other comparable cities um so i guess kind of kind of in 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 the process of kind of researching 
all of these tiger sightings. I mean, were you left with kind of a different view of what it means to be uh, to be to be a populated place that kind of juts up against um, that that juts up against wildlife, kind of the interaction between um, humans and animals? Yeah, um, it yes, I think it does. It does when you actually start looking at the wildlife that there is now, and you also look at the wildlife that was uh, that was here. Uh, I say here, I'm in the UK, but I think of myself in Hong Kong a lot of the time, really. But the wildlife that that was there, and and how you know the tigers were almost almost in touching distance of our time. Um, and certainly within the touching distance of, of older people, the older generations who still live, who, who were there at the time and who live there now, um, I think it can't help but um, make you adjust your understanding of the place and to put things into perspective. Um, you know, take snakes. I think, you know, uh, you, at any point... Um, in Hong Kong, anywhere you're standing in Hong Kong, you are probably closer to a snake or as close to a snake as you are to a 7-Eleven, which is quite hard to imagine when you think of the 7-Elevens as being the ubiquitous sort of face of the Hong Kong streets. Um, but snakes are just hidden um, because they do their best not to be seen, but they are all around. Um, and uh, originally for me, it was the birds that got me interested in Hong Kong because they're the easiest things to notice, um, especially the big kites. Um, and, and once you start um, noticing those birds and you want to know what they are and you start reading up about about uh, where they come from and, and, and you realise that there's 450 species of birds, including big eagles and raptors like uh, the imperial eagle that follows the wetland birds down on their migration from Siberia to Hong Kong. <laughs> uh, some of them stopping at Hong Kong, others going on from Hong Kong then towards Papua New Guinea, you know, Philippines, Papua New Guinea, uh, maybe Australia, maybe New Zealand from, from uh, you know, from the Arctic to Antarctic. Um, and Hong Kong is part of this, is part of that chain. And we're not separate. We're not, we're not some kind of artificial satellite. We're actually um, within that whole ecosystem um and i think that's what um tigers and macaques um and civic cats are, are, are a reminder of for me anyway <laughs> and a connection to that and history actually but that's a another door to open so i think with that that's a great place to end our conversation with John Sayeki, author of The Last Tigers of Hong Kong, True Stories of Big Cats That Stalked Britain's Chinese Colony. John, I actually have two final questions for you, and they are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What might your next project be? Um, well, the, 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 the Last Tigers of Hong Kong, I believe, are in, in uh, the, most of the Hong Kong bookstores. Uh, um cuisine um, and um, um, and also online on the blacksmith books uh, website that's uh, run by Pete Sperry publisher so um, that and many other really interesting uh, books about Hong Kong actually on uh, Pete's uh, blacksmith books website so pretty easy to get hold of 
And next, uh, well, thanks for asking. Um, well, unfortunately, I did have to leave Hong Kong after more than 20 years of living in, in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm in Yorkshire now, which uh, that's not unfortunate in itself. I'm happy to be here, but I'm looking for a, something else in Yorkshire. There is a story about a tiger that lived in the town that I'm in uh, called Homeforth. Um, there was a tiger that was kept by uh, a circus family here in the 1940s. And I was thinking about trying to find out a bit more about that. Um, apart from that, there's other wildlife like uh, ferrets um, and and things that I'm trying to learn about. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRIGordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned to learn more about who's coming up on the show. But before then, John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much.